0: Thank you, thank you Dave and the worship team for leading us in worship and how wonderful it is to worship a thrice holy God in the midst of the saints and I believe that despite our current situation and the current pandemic, that this is a worthy thing to do, that this is a righteous thing to do, that this is something worth risking our health is to gather as a body to worship God together, and to examine his word together and edify one another. Uh, thank you for the introduction, Dave. My name is Vox Mansalungan, and just to tell you a little bit about myself, I'm married, and my wife's name is Tori, and we have two children together, and uh, God has blessed us, and he satisfies us, and he has led us uh, through marriage and through life, and I've been serving at Missio Church since 2013, and God has just been tremendous to us. And I'd like to think that uh, Missio Church and New Village Church are our close, I guess, sister churches, as uh, we're very well connected to each other. Like they've said, me and him collaborate together often, um, and it's been a joy to sit under. Pastor Brooke Taylor's tutelage, and it's just, it's just wonderful to have such a close relationship with another church. I took my youth group a few years ago um, to a missions trip to Nashville, Tennessee, and let me tell you, it was an eye-opening experience because of culture shock. And I've lived in New York virtually my whole life, and in New York, we have a certain way of doing things, and we have a certain pace of how we do things, you know, like the New York Minute. And when I went down in Nashville, Tennessee, um, I was looking for a place to eat with the youth group, and we stumbled upon a fast food restaurant. I believe its name is Bojangles. And uh, I got to experience firsthand Southern pace. And I got to experience... Uh, how they do things, and it's much considerably slower than how we do things here in New York. I asked the gentleman, he came up to our table and asked us if we needed anything more, and I was like, wow, that's very courteous, in a fast food restaurant for them to come to us, and you know, uh, we hadn't had Chick-fil-A yet here in Port Jeff, so I hadn't experienced that yet, and I said, oh, I would like some barbecue sauce with my chicken, and I watched as he slowly backed up and walked behind the counter. And I thought to myself, heck, I'll just jump over the counter and get the barbecue sauce myself because this is taking forever. You know, like when we eat here in New York, like oftentimes I'll go to the bagel or the deli, and when you order, you have to order with a sense of urgency. You know, you, when the counter person looks at you, they're expecting you to tell you to tell them exactly what you want. There shouldn't be any delay. You've had all this time in line to think about what you want. You have people behind you probably giving you a dirty eye if you're taking a long time at the counter. You know, if you go, I'd like, ai uh, think, a baked egg and cheese um, sandwich, maybe some salt, maybe some pepper. No, they want you to just say, I'd like a BEC and SPK on a roll with this yoo-hoo. And then they, there's a sense and there's a certain way that we do things here in New York. And so in that moment, in that Bojangles in Nashville, Tennessee, God used that moment to open my eyes and to show me my impatience to show me that I have an instant gratification problem. Now, we're progr- programmed to believe that we're entitled to immediate service and instant gratification. We should get what we want, when we want it, and how we want it. And oftentimes, we treat God that way. And there's this common analogy that we say in church about treating God like a vending machine. You just approach it, you put in your money, you push the buttons, and you should get what you want. And that's oftentimes how we treat God. We just uh, push the right buttons to attain something from God. But that's not the way that God has designed how our relationship should be. But we live with the expectations that our demands have to be met immediately, or at least within our acceptable time frame. And we don't just subject the person across the counter or a waiter to that sort of attitude. More often than not, we will have the audacity to treat God in the same manner. In our sinful blindness, we mistake ourselves for belonging on the throne and for being in rule and sovereign over our own timing. And It takes a miracle, yes, a miracle from God for our our eyes to be opened and to see that the throne does not belong to us, but it belongs to Jesus Christ. And God does not operate on our timeline of instant gratification, but rather works in the timing of his eternal grace and wisdom. And so today I'm going to talk about, and we're going to see in scripture how God is sovereign. He is king and he opens our eyes and he completes what he starts and acts according to his perfect, righteous, holy timing. So, if you would turn with me to Mark, the Gospel of Mark, chapter 8, and we will be reading verse 22 through 30. And the Bible that I am reading from is an ESV Bible, so it may be a little different than yours, but no. The God's word remains true. So Mark chapter 8, verse 22 through 30. I'll give you a moment to turn there. And they came to Bethsaida, in verse 22. And some people brought to him a blind man, and they begged him to touch him. And he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village. And when he had spit on his eyes... And laid hands on him. He asked him, do you see anything? And he looked up and said, I see people. But they look like trees walking. Then Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again. And he opened his eyes. And his sight was restored. And he saw everything clearly. And he sent him home saying, do not even enter the village. to tell no one about him. Let's look to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, God, thank you for your word. Thank you that it instructs us. Thank you for your Holy Spirit, which leads us to the truth of your word that opens our eyes, oh God. And may you reveal your majesty to us, may you res- reveal to us and show us your power, your sovereignty your holiness, and our desperate need for you, O God. And in your precious Son's name, Jesus Christ, amen. So, if you were to read the Gospel of Mark, it reads quite like an action movie. It's fast-paced with quick scene changes. And a word that you see repeatedly through the book is this word, immediately which gives Mark's account of Jesus' ministry, a sense of urgency, a sense of quickness. And he casts out demons. He heals many, including a leper and a man with a withered hand. He rebukes the wind. He rebukes the sea and causes the storm to cease. And he walks on water. In chapter 2, a paralytic man, who he can't walk. He can't move on his own. He's lowered through a roof by his friends. And Jesus there causes the lame to walk. He causes the deaf to hear and the mute to speak, and he feeds thousands of people through his miraculous hand. And despite the overwhelming evidence of Jesus' work and his identity, his disciples are unable to identify him as the Son of God. In fact, the only ones to recognize him, Jesus' true identity, are the demons that he casts out. And the text tells us that his disciples are astonished. They're very impressed. In fact, they're they're left confused at times, or most times. But they can't comprehend him because their hearts are hardened. And it's easy for us to point our fingers and accuse them of being foolish and unwise. You idiots! Can't you see that Jesus is God?! in the flesh, Christ incarnate. And we easily come to the conclusion that Jesus should just ditch these 12 knuckleheads and find another group of people who are smarter, who are just less dense, and who are more spiritual. But we're going to see in Scripture how God is sovereign. And he acts according to his perfect timing, and he is the one who opens eyes, and he always completes what he starts. So Jesus arrives in Bethsaida and he's brought a man who can't see. And they're desperate. They are desperate for him to be healed. It says in the text that they begged him to touch him. So you see uh, their desperation. And they have heard of Jesus' reputation. And they understand that for this blind man's life to change, that he needs an extraordinary counter with Jesus Christ. They understand that this Jesus, is he is no ordinary, no ordinary man, and just a touch from him would suffice. And Jesus displays his compassion, his love, and his humility with this tender action of leading the blind man by the hand out of the city. And I've had, because of my line of work, I've had a, a special privilege of leading blind people before, And it could be a sweet moment, it could be intimate, of of bonding, having to guide someone who is totally dependent on you, not leading them into a wall. And the blind man is being led by his stranger, he doesn't know Jesus, he's just heard about him, he just met him, but he trusts that this particular stranger is worth following. And Jesus leads him away from his friends, and he leads him away from the family, and navigates him through the town, probably through narrow street corridors, and around townspeople, and around different obstacles. And there's this subtle picture of Jesus, the servant king, aiding the lowly, helping the helpless. See, blindness, it's a difficult thing. Today it's difficult, and especially in Jesus' time. If you doubt the struggle of blindness, I, I challenge you to, to after the service is over, don't do it now, but after service is over, close your eyes. Try walking to the bathroom and then making your way back outside to your vehicle without ever opening your eyes. Imagine having to do your job without opening your eyes. And all you, all, it's just total pitch blackness. Having to feel and grope your way. Always, each step is a guess and uncertain. Blindness is a severe handicap that would have prevented you and it prevents this blind man in Jesus' time from working. And, and you're totally dependent on help from others just to survive. And back in the first century, as a blind man, he is rejected by society. He's considered untouchable. Because that society back then believed that his blindness was judgment for sin. And he was viewed as sinfully sinfully guilty and unclean. Well, that part they did get right because he is sinfully guilty and he is unclean and he is in need of a Savior to redeem him and to heal him from his condition. That blind man is very, he is acutely aware of his blindness and he knows he needs Jesus to give him sight. He knows he needs Jesus to make him right in the world. And while the blind man is aware of the darkness over his eyes, the world around him and the world around us is totally unaware. They don't know. They're totally ignorant of their own spiritual blindness. The darkness in their heart and their need for healing. And Jesus leads him out of the village, right? And he brings him to, to a suitable place. I don't know where, but it's out of the village and he does something incredibly peculiar. He spits on him, in the face, right on his eyes. Now, Jesus using his saliva uh, to, to minister to people, it's unusual, but it's not unprecedented. Uh, and in the previous chapter, Jesus heals a deaf man with a speech impediment, and, and Jesus' saliva is, uh, is involved. And in John 9:6, he makes mud from soil and a spit and heals a blind man. But for us today, we have this visceral reflex to being spit on. It's disrespectful. It's offensive. In Jesus' day, there was this common belief that healer's saliva had, a, had curative properties. It was, like, it was like an old wives' tale remedy. So we could come to the conclusion that this blind man is not actually offended, it, offended by Jesus' actions. So this is, this is probably par for the course for him. Why does Jesus spit on him? I don't know, but Jesus is God. He's sovereign. He is the master. And he will complete his will no matter how unusual or unexpected. And he completes his will in his perfect timing, and his perfect ways. So Jesus then lays his hands on him after he spits on him and asks if he sees anything. And the blind man responds that he sees people but the image is distorted. It appears as if trees are walking. So you see, there is a great stretching, right? Because people aren't as tall as trees, and there's probably colors blurred. And it seems as if Jesus only grants a partial healing, which is a sharp contrast to Mark's account of Christ's ministry on earth, where his healings were fully effective immediately. People were being healed of their sickness just by touching the hem of his clothes. He raises a dead girl back to life just by speaking. Here in this particular account, there is a man who only has a half healing initially. And if it was today, I bet he would still qualify as legally blind. There is no prescription that will correct trees to the people. There's no glasses that can do that. There's no contact lenses. The next verse then describes Jesus completing the work laying his hands on his eyes again, and his sight being completely restored. And I believe that to be perfect 2020 vision. And then he dismisses the man and tells him to go home and instructs him to avoid people by not entering the village. He doesn't want him to tell anybody. And this is because he doesn't want this miracle to be misunderstood and be driven out of the area. And there's also in another gospel account where Jesus curses Bethsaida for their unbelief. So he does not Permit that this sign, that this man's healing be a sign to them. So, what's the deal here? What's the hang up? Why didn't this man's healing occur instantaneously like the previous miracles? Was this man's case more difficult than others that it j- took Jesus two tries? Was Jesus just having a rough day? Certainly not. Like I said before, he is the master and he is sovereign. And he will complete his will no matter how unusual or unexpected in his perfect timing and in his perfect way. And there's no work. There is no obstacle that is out of the Lord's ability to complete the first time. If he so chooses, he can hit a home run on the first pitch every single time. He chose to cause the deaf to hear, the mute to speak, and the lame to walk immediately. He casts out demon and te- demons in terror with just his words and his presence. He feeds the multitudes almost effortlessly. So we can rightfully come to the conclusion that Jesus chose, he chose purposely to heal this man incrementally in stages. And he chose to heal this man this way, to be a sign unto the blind man, no, but to his disciples. And we know this because directly after words, Mark documents an interaction with Jesus and his disciples. So as a youth minister I get to spend time with um, my teenage students a lot and what I like to do is I like to ask them lots and lots of questions. I'll ask them questions. So if I just meet a student for the first time I'll just say, hey, how's this going? Nice to meet you. What do you think your three greatest strengths are? And what I like to do is I like to give them a a big question but really that big question is supposed to lead to a bigger question. I'll ask them, hey, what are your three greatest strengths? After they tell me and after they explain I'll say, why do you think God made you that way? What do you think you're supposed to use those strengths for? And so I like to use a question to set up a more precise spiritual question. And so in verse 27, Jesus asks his disciples, Who do people say that I am? You know, what are the surveys and the polls reporting? And his disciples inform Jesus that the rumors are that he's John the Baptist, that he's Elijah or one of the prophets, maybe one of the prophets have resurrected or reincarnated, or maybe he's a new prophet. And the identity of Jesus is different to different people, right? And isn't that how it is today, that there are so many different opinions on who Jesus is? Just listen to the world, and you can hear all the different perspectives from each different person, That the uh, and uh, the identity and the work of Jesus is very rarely accurately depicted in movies and books and in media. Kevin DeYoung, who is a pastor and an author that I greatly admire, wrote this uh, article. And it's about how different people have uh, construed Jesus differently. You know, there's Republican Jesus, who is against tax increases and activist judges and for family values and owning firearms. There's Democrat Jesus, who is against Wall Street and Walmart and for reducing our carbon footprint and spending other people's money. There's therapist Jesus, who helps us cope with life's problems, heals our past, and tells us how valuable we are and not to be so hard on ourselves. There's Starbucks Jesus who drinks fair trade coffee, loves spiritual conversations, drives a hybrid and goes to film festivals. There's open-minded Jesus who loves everyone all the time, no matter what, except for people who are not as open-minded as you. There's touchdown Jesus who helps athletes run faster and jump higher than non-Christians and determines the outcomes of Super Bowls. There's martyr Jesus, a good man who died a cruel death so we can feel sorry for him. There's gentle Jesus, who was meek and mild, with high cheekbones, flowing hair, and walks around barefoot wearing a sash and looks German. There's hippie Jesus, who teaches everyone to give peace a chance. Imagine a world without religion, and help us remember all you need is love. There's yuppie Jesus, who encourages us to reach our full potential, reach for the stars, and buy a boat. There's spirituality Jesus, who hates religion, churches, pastors, priests, and doctrine. He wants us to find the God within. There's platitude Jesus, good for Christmas specials, greeting cards, and bad sermons. He inspires people to believe in themselves and lifts us up so we can walk on mountains. There's revolutionary Jesus, who teaches us to rebel the status quo. There's guru Jesus, wise and inspirational teacher. There's boyfriend Jesus, who wraps his arms around us as we sing about his intoxicating love in our secret place. There's good example Jesus, who shows you how to better help people, change the planet. And then there's Jesus Christ, the son of the living God, not just another prophet, not just another rabbi, not just another wonder worker, He was the one that God's people had been waiting for. And so I know that lots of people here have lots of different views of Jesus. And back then, people could recognize that Jesus was not like them, not of this world. They could recognize that Jesus was different. There is a supernatural quality about him. So their assessment was that he was a man of renown that had come back from the grave, or they suspected he was the next prophet or teacher, and he would foretell the coming of the coming of the Messiah. But these are insufficient guesses because this Jesus was the one that John the Baptist and all his predecessors, all the other prophets spoke of. Jesus is the one which the prophet in the wilderness cried out to prepare the way for. Jesus is not simply one of the prophets, but he is the culmination, the fulfillment of all the prophecies foretold. He did not come from the grave, but rather he was going to it for the purpose of ransoming his people from sin with his own life. Hallelujah that he did not stay in the tomb, but emerge victoriously alive and that the resurrection power that brought him back to life now dwells within the people of his church. And he asks his disciples who the people said he was, and then he gets to the question that he was really getting to, but who do you say that I am? And this is quite the loaded question. And it's probably the most important question one can ever ask, and that one can ever answer. It's a question with direct implications for eternity. And what we think about God and and fancy academic terms, our theology, that's what dictates how we live our lives, from the most significant moments to the most mundane of moments. And it's our duty not to only defend the correct answer, but also to proclaim it for the glory of God, for the benefit of every man, woman, and child. And when Jesus asks his his disciples this question, it is Peter who answers. And Peter, Peter, probably gets the most flack out of all the disciples. Pastors, people love to highlight his impulsive reputation, how he puts his foot in his mouth. And I would argue that Peter was probably no more foolish than any other disciple. But Peter's life displays God's goodness and faithfulness in an incredibly distinct way. Just in the previous verses, Peter along with the other disciples were unable to comprehend the identity of Jesus. They were discussing amongst themselves that they had no bread when Jesus had just fed 4,000 people from seven loaves of bread and a few fish. And they were probably arguing who forgot to pack the food when the bread of life the very bread of life was in their midst. He was with them. And they left Jesus languishing that they didn't understand who he was yet. But God displays his providence, his love, and his grace by granting Peter understanding of his true identity. That he's not just Jesus, but he is the Christ. Jesus gives Peter eyes to see, to recognize Jesus as coming from God, coming from heaven. And Peter, with his newfound vision, has the spiritual comprehension to identify Jesus as the Christ. And we say Jesus Christ commonly. Even unbelievers will call him by that name. But we need to recognize the significance of that name. Christ is not Jesus' last name. Like, my last name is Mansalungan. But Christ is not Jesus' last name. He was not born on earth by Mr. Mr. and Mrs. Joseph and Mary Christ. Christ is his title. People spend a lot of resources and time chasing after a title. Medical students seek to put M.D. after their name. Or a politician chasing the title of senator. Titles imply status, and they imply skill to somebody. They imply their role in society. But Jesus has never had to pursue his title, because it is integral to his identity. It wasn't like Peter calls him the Christ, and then it was a a nickname that stuck. Jesus does not become the Christ. He is the Christ. And Peter confesses Jesus as Christ, and Christ means anointed one. One who is anointed is one who is selected and set apart for a specific task. Prophets, priests, and kings... We're anointed with oil oil in the Old Old Testament for a specific purpose. So Jesus, the anointed one, shows he is recognized as Jesus to be the Messiah, the chosen one anointed by God to redeem and rescue his people, the prophet who reveals to us God's will, the priest who sacrificed himself to atone for our sin, and the king who is Lord over all. And Jesus instructs them to tell no one about it. So here's the first point that I want us to see. That God gives us spiritual sight to reveal himself. God gives us spiritual sight to reveal himself. And just as Jesus had compassion on the blind man and led him through the city, navigating him through the town, through the village, around people, so too does our Savior lead us through the complexities of life and the chaos and the pitch blackness of our sin. Just as the blind man had a personal encounter with Jesus for his eyes to open. It was an intimate moment, right? So too do we experience a unique and personal encounter with God as he opens our eyes to see him as king and as savior. And though our testimonies may sound similar, Each testimony is incredibly unique. My own testimony is that I grew up in church and I considered myself to be a goody two shoes kid. But in my late teens, I had grown disenchanted with with church culture and I was exploring different belief systems like agnosticism and atheism. But I was so depressed, I was so hopeless. At the time, I was working at a wall bombs, which is now a stop and shop in Rocky Point. And in my despair, I don't know where this prayer came from, but in my despair, I said, God, what can I do for you to love me again? And in that moment, as I'm putting away produce on, on the shelf, God opens my eyes and reveals to me that He had always loved me and I had not done anything to earn His love that his love was grace and mercy to me. And I remember I was just putting up fruit, struggling to hold back tears as God had opened my eyes and revealed to me his grace in my life. And the truth is, we are not the ones who find God, but it's God who seeks us out and draws us to himself. We do not stumble upon him and discover him, but rather his grace and mercy intervenes in our lives. And then in his wonderful salvation, and through the process of sanctification, we discover the richness of his love. God is sovereign, and he is the one who grants us sight to see him, and we are only able to see him and love him because he first loved us. And in his love towards us, he gives us his Holy Spirit. And we can only understand Scripture because of his Holy Spirit, right? Because many people read the Bible, and they don't see Christ magnified. They come to the wrong conclusions because they're spiritually blind. And we can see sin, and we can see the holiness of God, and we can repent because of God's Holy Spirit opening our eyes. God is light, and it is he who reveals and shows us his ways our darkness my second my second point here is that God is faithful to complete the work that he begins I had a friend once once joke with me that he wanted to start a construction company called good enough construction and a name like that doesn't really evoke a uh, sense of confidence in their handiwork and if we're honest we can approach our responsibilities with just a good enough work ethic whether it's how we do the chores in our house, students, and maybe it's how you do your homework assignments, adults, maybe it's how we work on a Friday before punching out for the weekend. Each of us can have a good enough attitude when it comes to our walk with God. How much devotional time we spend reading God's word and how much time we spend praying then we just end our, our devotional time short and just say, that was good enough. We could, we could just have a good enough Uh, attitude towards our church engagement with just minimal participation show up late leave early don't talk to anybody don't serve we have a good enough attitude towards how we witness to a dying world where we compromise and call it good enough but not but god never concludes anything with good enough he did not abandon the blind man with only a partial healing he gives him 20 20 vision to behold our beautiful Savior's incarnate face. And he doesn't dismiss his disciples disp- despite their hard hearts, but he was long-suffering and, long, long and patient towards them. He didn't smack them on the head and berate them for their lack of understanding, but instead he gently <laughs> reveals his glorious nature to them. And when Peter confesses Jesus as the Christ, it is because God has opened his eyes to him And he catches a glimpse of Jesus Christ's heavenly identity. And above all, Jesus did not leave a work undone, unfinished on Calvary. God did not retreat or surrender to his temptation. He did not shy away after his blood first dropped from his body and say that was good enough. But he sacrificed his whole life and he withheld nothing. He gave his blood freely for our purchase and justification from sin and condemnation. And Jesus completely, completely satisfied the will of his Father. And by being faithful to the Father, he's being faithful to us. And the Apostle Paul writes in Scripture in Philippians 1.6, And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ. And If we believe God's word is true, then we can hold on to that promise. And my last point here is that God will use time as a tool to glorify himself. God will use time as a tool to glorify himself. Part of what makes sunrises so beautiful is because it's slow and it's gradual. It's rise over the horizon. Our our creator didn't design day and night to be like a light switch on and off, but rather he gives us opportunity to behold the majesty and the glory of his creation over time. If the sun appeared at high noon instantly, we'd miss out on the glorious display of the sweeping spectrum of glowing colors in the sky. And throughout the Gospels, you see Jesus completely healing people with immediacy. So, that, so this account stands out. And this account only appears in Mark's Gospel, and I believe Mark wants us to show us something. Christ heals the man, In two stages, it was gradual. And even though it was only over the course of a few moments, we can look and come to the conclusion that God can do things without delay and God can do things over the course of time and both glorify him. We can see God's gradual ministry in his disciples. The disciples have been following Jesus around all over the countryside for a prolonged period. And it's safe to assume that their conversion was not immediate. And Scripture explicitly describes their heart's condition as hardened. And we assume that because they dropped their nets to follow Jesus, that they're immediately of Christ. But it isn't until now do we see a confession that Jesus is Messiah, the Anointed One. And Romans 10 tells us that salvation is indicated with believing in our hearts and confessing with our mouths. It is, time, it is over time that God draws his disciples to himself, and it is over time that God draws his people, his church, to himself. It is over time spent with Christ, time apart from Christ, in high times on the, val- on the mountaintop and low times in the valley. And part of our church jargon, right, is to say it's all in God's timing. Trust in God's timing. And it's easy to tell that to someone, And it's easy to say that we agree, but in reality, it is difficult to believe. It's difficult to practice. And in our timing, more often than not, it's rooted in our own desire for instant gratification. God is sovereign. He could do things instantly, but he is not always a God of instantaneous gratification. But he's a God who values true growth over time. So let us view time differently, not as a boundary, confined and limited to it, but let us remember that time is a tool for God's kingdom. And some of you, some of you don't understand the gospel, and some of you don't understand the ways of God and that's because you, d- you can't see him you are spiritually blind maybe you're resisting God as he draws you to himself God wants to lead you out of your darkness But maybe you're having difficulty trusting him I want to encourage you to trust him allow him to lead you out of your familiar comfort zones allow him to approach your vulnerabilities trust him because the end result is wonderful And I know it's wonderful because I've experienced, and there are people here who will also testify how wonderful trusting in Jesus is. Where we were once in our sin, dead, blind, and totally hopeless in Christ, we are made alive. Our eyes are opened to see the beautiful and glorious hope that is in Jesus. And there are some of you that have heard the gospel and probably could recite it with some other Christianese church jargon. You might be able to talk the talk, but you can't really walk the walk. You may have been surrounded by God's word and God's people, but you still can't see Christ. You still don't know him. You still can't recognize him. And you don't know him because perhaps you don't really care to. And you would rather have a vending machine for a savior than a true and living God. And in your blindness, you've made yourself comfortable with sin the ways of the world around you, I want to encourage you, allow God to open your eyes to see the insufficiency of everything and to see and to realize the great sufficiency in Christ. Agla- allow God to open up your eyes and wake you up to behold God's supremacy, to see His holiness and to repent and to see that life walking with Christ is far more fulfilling than complacent blindness. And some of you may be struggling in your walk. You know God, but, and your eyes have been opened by Him. But you feel lost. Christianity promises that you would feel the joy of the Lord, that you would have peace. That surpasses understanding, but maybe right now, in this moment, in this season, in this chapter of your life, you feel like those promises are beyond your reach. Or maybe in your walk with the Lord you feel bogged down and you've grown stagnant and you're not growing. Your wheels are just spinning, but you're not going anywhere. And maybe this is how you feel as a church with no lead pastor yet for two years. Perhaps you feel forgotten by God. Let me reassure you that God, our King, has not forgotten about you, but loves you, and no matter where you are in your life, He is faithful to you. That means he's devoted to you and that he is with you. He's present and carries you forward, even if you are unable to see it in the moment. And have joy knowing that even though you can't see the whole picture right now, there is a time coming where you will see and realize God's faithfulness to his bride, the church, and that he always, he always, always, always completes what he begins. And perhaps, lastly, for some of you, you are struggling with time. Maybe it's going too fast. That life is passing you by too fast. Maybe you feel like you aren't reaching your full potential. Or maybe you feel that your window of opportunity is closing for whatever plans you have. That you don't have enough time. Or your kids are growing up too fast. You don't have enough time to pursue your passion. Perhaps for some of you, time is going too slow. You you have a destination you're trying to reach. It's taking too long to get there, whether it's retirement, finding your own home, finding a spouse, graduating, and you wish that those things would just arrive. Maybe time is slow for you because you suffer with chronic illness. And so for lengths of time, Every moment is excruciating. Can I encourage you and tell you that no matter how you are struggling with time, God is using it to prepare a testimony within you. That testimony will be precious and powerful because it is seasoned with time. It will be like gold refined in fire. And though it's painful, it's precious because you went through the intensity of the crucible. So don't waste your testimony. John Piper, uh, another pastor and author I really admire, has a book that says, don't waste your cancer. Don't waste your sickness. Don't waste your suffering. But worship in the midst of it. And let that be a witness to those around you. And it is a promise that God will redeem your suffering and turn it into something glorious. Like the song we sang this morning, Graves into gardens. He will turn what is bad into something good. Look at Job's example. Job in the Bible, he suffered and lost greatly. Yet in the end, he was rewarded. Yes, he had more children and his wealth was increased. That was a reward, but that was not the reward. The true and the eternal reward was seeing, was realizing that God is sovereign. And Job's vision was expanded to see God for who he truly is, the God who is king, and the God who serves. So whatever the times are like, remember that God is working on your behalf and that time is a tool in his hands. There's a singer-songwriter by the name of John Lucas. He has a song called Time. And the last line of the song is, he, the king... Jesus, the king, paints beauty with time. He paints beauty with time. So in conclusion, we as God's people are infinitely blessed to know Christ as king. We are infinitely blessed to have our eyes opened by him, to see him and recognize him, his true and eternal identity. We see how God serves us, and we know that our life's purpose is to serve him and glorify him. And we are blessed because God will complete what he has begun. And we have a hope that even when things seem hopeless, we have a hope that God will finish what he starts. That even though our vision is still partly obscured, as in a mirror dimly, there is a day coming where we will see him. We will see each other face to face and he will embrace us and welcome us and wipe the tears from our eyes, and we will behold and hold the glory of God. And we are blessed that God does not leave us in a wretched state, in our broken condition, but leads us to himself, to his healing, and uses time to make beauty from darkness. So it is the end of my time here, but in Christ and in his kingdom, in his sovereignty, This is just the beginning. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for opening up our eyes. Thank you, Lord, that you drew us to yourself and that you heal us. I pray that our hearts would be moved, that we would be motivated, that we would have joy, that we would have hope, seeing you as king. And may we proclaim you to a lost and dying world, that you are king, you are Lord, you are savior, and you are on the throne. And may we live by your perfect timing. In your precious Son's name, Jesus Christ, amen. Thank you.